Well, welcome everybody to the Affiliated Podcast. I'm Dominic Keenan with ClickBank. And today we are joined by Michael Kerrigan, who's been a partner of ClickBank's success and growth for the last, it's got to be close to 20 years, I would assume, Michael. Yeah, almost 20 years. Yeah, he's a, a lawyer with Holland and Hart, which is one of the largest law firms in the United States. He's also a nationally known attorney advising clients on e-commerce issues. He and his firm advises on everything from intellectual property, privacy, contracts, investigations, and compliance. Also, uh, he's been listed in the best lawyers in America for nearly 10 years and is listed as a super lawyer for nearly 15 years, although we are wondering if he wears a cape some of the time. Uh, we will likely have Michael back a couple more times to talk about other issues, but today we're talking about three letters you never want to hear, and that would be FTC. Mr. Kerrigan, welcome to the Affiliated Podcast. Hey, Dom, great to be on. Thanks for having me. It's great to host one of the uh, super lawyers for sure. So, uh, well, let's jump right in. Let's jump right in. Uh, the FTC. Why should people in our space care about the FTC? Well, when it comes to advertising and marketing, the FTC is basically the FBI of advertising. Um, they are Fe Federal Trade Commission. Uh, it's the main federal agency that's out there to protect consumers. Um, and while they do some antitrust things to make sure companies don't get too big, that's been in the news a lot with Amazon. What we're talking about today is they're the main agency that sets rules around how people can advertise products and how they can sell products, what to say, not to say. And then they're the hammer that comes down when people break the rules. Yeah, I, uh, in a prior life, I was a commercial banker and I still subscribe to the Wall Street Journal and read it regularly. And it seems like they've been fairly active over the past couple of years. It seems like there's a headline at least weekly about FTC action um, at least the past two years. So I would imagine. Yeah, the Biden administration has been very, very active. Um, you know, every president has a right to appoint commissioners for a set term. And the, the last GOP appointee recently quit complaining about how active they've been. The budget for this year is over $400 million. It's a 15% increase. They have over a thousand lawyers and investigators to go out there and look for problems and go after bad doers. Uh, interesting. So when we start thinking about our niche of, of marketing, um, what can or does the FTC do? Well, first we can talk about what their powers are, and then we can talk about what rules they set. But to, to sort of make sure people know this is not something to be, uh, to be taken lightly. So the FTC has broad powers. About the only thing they can't do to you is put you in jail. That would be the FBI. But they can come down and investigate you. Usually that's usually you have an idea you're under the microscope because they will show up um, and send you a subpoena and you have to start turning over information. I have a lot of clients who have to go through that. And that alone is a very expensive process. Fortunately, about a third of the time I can get the case wrapped up without problems. But ultimately, if they decide to sue you, they're the federal government, they print the money. So you don't want to go to battle with them if, unless you absolutely have to. So what can they do to you? Well, they uh, they can get they can go after you to get money back that they will then turn over to consumers or impose civil penalty, millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars. Um, and a, I should mention that 
in extreme cases, they can and do go in ahead of time and freeze people's bank accounts. And then people actually have to go to the court and say, can I get some of my money back to at least hire a lawyer? So they're a very powerful agency. That's, when that happens, that's prior to it being adjudicated? Yes, it's extraordinary relief. They can go in, basically if they say, this, this business is such a scam, if you don't seize what money they have now, judge, there won't be enough left to get back to the consumers. And then the, they can come in and they can get a court order that freezes people's bank accounts and they can't even withdraw their own money from their business and sometimes their own personal accounts. Huh. Okay. Well, one of the things that we read about quite a bit is uh, deceptive advertising. So, you know, I'm sure anyone listening to this, first question is, what is deceptive advertising? Well, um, the scary thing is, it's kind of what the FTC decides it is. Because it's a broad statute that Congress passed uh, almost 100 years ago to create the FTC. Um, and so the definition of deceptive has evolved over time. And in different scenarios, they apply it in different ways. But basically, um, they want to make sure that products, if people are going to claim what their product or service can do, because obviously you want to get people to buy it. So you got to say, this is what we'll do for you. Can you substantiate it? is the word they use. Can you back up what you're claiming? Um, and there's a lot of things that people think they can get around that by results not typical, things like that. But that's the main thing is, are you over-promising claiming results that you can't back up? Yeah, I actually see that fairly frequently in, in products that are submitted to us a um, couple times a year where there would be a disclaimer at the bottom, results not typical. And... I know our compliance team takes a look at that and sends it back to the client says you, you can't you can't submit this. I didn't realize that was on the basis of FTC expectations though. Oh yeah. Yeah, they, so because of course everybody wants cherry pick, right? So if it's a if it's a diet pill or a diet program, they want to pick the one person who's lost the most weight and that's when they and they think, well, as long as they're saying results not typical. So two things, the FTC first of all, if you're saying that, it better be crystal clear. But even then, the FTC's rule is you're supposed to say, additionally, here are the typical results. Yes, this one person lost 30 pounds in, in a month. Most people lose two or three is what they would what they'd expect you to do. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, speaking of that, I have seen outside of, uh, you know, that's a lot of supplements or uh, will claim results not typical, but I see... In the BizOp space, the disclaimers um, will be skipped over really quick or buried at the bottom. That's another thing that we usually pick up on. I'd imagine this is pretty much the same rule applied to just a different product. Exactly. The same performance. You know, if you're talking about here's how much money people can make. And I've had lots of clients that do an honest job and try to have those disclaimers. And this is where the FTC, as a, as a government agency, has a lot of power. And they'll say, yeah, you put that disclaimer in at minute eight. But the webinar went on for another three hours where you led people to believe because what the FTC says is what's the net impression? What's the net impression? So if you have a few minutes of disclaimers and followed by two hours of talking about how much money and watches and cars and stuff you're going to be able to buy using this this particular business opportunity, then they're going to come down on you. Net impression being subjective in the eyes of the regulator? Again, yes, it's like deceptive. What is the net impression? 
Mm-hmm. What um, and that's one of the things you fight about. And and I have had a lot of arguments with FTC lawyers and saying, okay, what? How do you know that's a net impression? They say, well, we just we think it is. And if if there's a client with millions of dollars ready to fight and take that, then that can happen. And you get an expert witness. You get some professor of economics who will come in and say, oh no, I think the net impression actually is closer to what was real because of the disclaimer. But again, that's the problem for a lot of entrepreneurs. Do you really want to spend all that money mm-hmm. to go in and have that fight and have that battle? And it's all in public because it's, it's in a public courtroom, which isn't going to be real good for your brand. Oh, I didn't even think about that. So they file a lawsuit. Everybody else can they see file it. a lawsuit. They do a press release. Yes. Hmm. I have read some of those press releases. They um, certainly make the... Uh, the target of the lawsuit sound uh, like a like a monster, so I wouldn't want to be on the other end of it. They definitely like to focus on the worst examples, even if those examples are not typical, which is ironic. So we were talking uh, mainly around claims of the product. I have seen uh, some objections to what's called, I believe, by the regulators, value stacking, but basically um, stacking a bunch of products together, saying they're worth X number of dollars. We're going to sell it to you for a percentage of X that's much lower. Um, this, and perhaps I'm getting the wrong impression from what I'm reading, but this seems to be a real hot button topic for uh, for the regulator currently. Yeah, it is. So we all see it's like, well, you get, and it's an upsell often, right? Is is they're saying here's this product, and um, we'll throw in this product, and then this this additional value and all of these separately would be $600 and we're going to give it to you for $200. And the problem is almost never can someone say, yeah, I have sold those different items for collectively for the total amount. They, they, that is what's called va- value stacking. It's very common. I had a, I had a client who was, uh, had a product and I advised against it. So he did a webinar with the value stacking and one without, and he said he, he didn't see increased sales when he did the value stacking. So he decided to drop it. Oh, Not really? only was the right thing to do. And I think that's that's my lay that's my impression that I think a lot of consumers think this is pretty sketchy when you're throwing out claiming this particular thing is worth so much money and people pay for it all the time. But you're gonna give it to me for ten percent. I think if there are consumers who are rightly a little suspicious about those claims. So that's the other reason I not only should you not do it, but are you really getting consumers to have confidence in your product if you're promising, you know, this crazy amount it's worth. Yeah. And uh, I'm curious on, we see products, of course, almost nearly any product sold online has um, testimonials, reviews. Uh, the consumer is comfortable using reviews. Amazon obviously is is the king of this. Several products with thousands and thousands of reviews. Um, we're dealing with much smaller sellers than Amazon, obviously. However, many of them prominently place reviews. Any thoughts or guidance around the use of them, uh, particularly on sales pages? Yeah, so those are sort of two. So there's the testimonials, which I think are a little bit different than reviews. So let's talk testimonials is often when you got the, you got the picture up there, maybe it's a famous person or a, um, maybe it's, it's just an ordinary consumer. So those obviously have to be accurate. That won't, that won't surprise people. But once again, you can't use testimonials to take the place of actual science or actual research or actually knowing what your product does. 
And I think there's a lot of folks, again, going back to the results, not typical. Well, I'm just going to put five testimonials up there and people could, because that will lead to the net impression that everyone's going to have the same experience as those testimonials. The other thing is if you give somebody for a test, give something to someone for a testimonial, you have to disclose that. And hopefully it's not a surprise that if the testimonial comes from an employee or one of your sales reps, that should be disclosed as well. It really has. So if there's anything that would motivate or influence that, that a consumer would want to know, that testimonial should include it. Now, the, the, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, I remember a, a supplement company a couple of years ago that had a testimonial from the owner's mom and <laughs> <laughs> they ran it by. So it was just, you know, this, this random woman who had a very, very uh, pleasant testimonial about the product. And uh, whoever, I, I don't know what attorney reviewed the page, but said, you have to at least disclose that it's the owner's mom, but preferably take it down. <laughs> Well, I would hope my mom would give me a testimonial, but not necessarily for a product. <laughs> and so the other issue you mentioned is is the um, the fake reviews, which, of course, because those are has become such a common problem and so easy on Amazon and others for people to just throw up in a, a random name. I'm Barry G. And this product was great that they're not only is the FTC starting to get uh, more aggressive on those, but they're expecting platforms and companies to do that. You know, Amazon is expected to be cracking down on it because it's, it has become such a problem on their platform. So, yeah, and uh, there are tactics. Actually, we should do a podcast about this. There are tactics to get uh, quality, good reviews out of your existing customers, and we'll have to we'll have to put one together on that because it's not. It's actually not as hard as it would seem. So yeah, it's valuable, and people do rely on it. And that's something I've learned from my wife. I always check those reviews, and now in my line of work, I'm more skeptical about how real they are. Yeah. The other thing before we leave this topic is the false scarcity that comes up a lot, where people have timers or they only have ten, a hundred left, or ninety left. And I always giggle when I see that, especially for eBooks and digital products, because I mean, really, really. So that. Or, or how, why is it every time I go to the pitch page, there's, there's 20 minutes left to buy, whether I visit at noon or at eight o'clock that night. So that sort of false scarcity is another thing that the FTC does not approve of and will come down on you if that's part of your deceptive advertising. Yeah, that seemed to be very prevalent uh, eight, 10 years ago. And at the time, ClickBank was a digital product only platform. And remember, we ended up banning mm -hmm. Countdown. Scarcity. That's probably uh, on my advice. <laughs> I, I would guess so. The uh, limitations on an ebook, unless it's an NFT or, or uh, right <laughs> before NFTs. So. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to get your thoughts on a term that I just heard recently, and now it seems like I hear it quite frequently when it comes to FTC action is digital dark patterns. It's a nebulous, yeah. like nebulous, scary term that's floating out there now. So dark patterns actually is uh, was was coined by um, a user experience expert, I think, in, in the UK. And so it's uh, unlike a lot of sort of general references, it's not intuitive what it means. But dark patterns is used broadly, even by the FTC, to apply basically any trickery that businesses will use to um, make it difficult for people to to they trick them into signing up. They make it difficult to cancel a subscription. Those sorts of things 
are are called dark patterns. Sometimes can even be things where you're tricking a consumer into providing information that they're then going to turn around and sell in violation of privacy rules. So, um, and this is sometimes people hear these things like, oh, they're yeah, clearly that's some sketchy website. Well, just last month, the FTC sued no smaller company than Amazon, calling it a dark pattern because Amazon would trick people into signing up for Prime and then making it very difficult to cancel that subscription. So here, here you have one of the largest companies in the world sued by the Federal Trade Commission for using dark patterns to simply get people to buy Prime memberships. Yeah, it, it's uh, the roadblocks to returns or cancellations always frustrates me when I see that among our clients because it almost always causes more problems than it's worth. Um, making making customer service difficult to access or long delays, we strongly discourage that. And oftentimes when we're working with a client to try to improve things, that's the first thing is make your customer service front and center. Um, sure, your refund rate's gonna go up a couple points, but your chargeback rates are gonna go way down. Your quality of the experience with your people is, is absolutely worth it. And it solves a lot of, a lot of problems that most vendors in that situation are facing. Yeah, I mean, I, it, I'll probably repeat it at the end of our conversation because it's the single biggest advice I give to folks. You know, of course, try to make good quality sales with good practices, but if you get valid requests for refunds, be generous, give them. The, sometimes the biggest winners, if you're gonna be stubborn on refunds, are gonna be lawyers like me because that's when consumers really get mad and that's when they go to the Better Business Bureau and that's when they go to their local attorney general or the FTC, because it's one thing to buy a product they're not happy about, but then if they feel like they're being ignored when they want a refund, or even worse, they've submitted a refund request, they have a good reason and no one answers, that's when they really get angry and they follow through. And then ultimately that's how the investigation gets rolling and then it's gonna cost you a lot more money in the long run. And just to be, be clear about where the bar is, if I recall correctly on this Amazon case that was just filed recently, we're talking about like five or six clicks, not that they have to call somebody and wait a long time like that. That was the threshold at which the FTC decided to go after them. Is that, is that, that was part of it? Part of it was the clicks were hard to find sometimes. And yeah, it was lack of just making it difficult. So again, it's a subjective standard that that is the one example with Amazon. They were making it a, an overly complicated process. You know, again, you can sign up with one click, but you have to follow through a bunch of different things, provide information, maybe a order number or something, with trying to make it difficult for someone to cancel. You should make it as easy to cancel, as certainly as easy as you made it to sign up. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Uh, moving on to another topic, uh, on we, we see an attempt to improve conversions on, I mean, you see this not just on ClickBank anywhere, but adding um, organic or the uh, the bottle is compostable or biodegradable or, you know, whatever it may be, is an attempt to uh, improve the conversions on that. I know our review, our label review folks are very strict on that and it causes some complaints. I'm curious if you could add your thoughts on why it's worthwhile to be strict on it and be accurate on what's on the label. Well, again, this is another term that the FTC has used broadly. They have a whole guide on it. It's called greenwashing. So greenwashing is where people take products 
and sometimes they're directly related to some environmental benefit or sometimes they're not. Maybe it's a water, plastic water bottle or things like that, and they, they hold them out as being environmentally beneficial um, when they're not, or it's a minor thing. I've, I had a case with the FTC where they were talking about how environmentally friendly a particular iPhone gadget was. And the only thing was that the cardboard packaging was recyclable. And that, that's what they're saying made them. Um, so greenwashing is just saying something's eco-friendly when it's really not, it's not intended that, it's not any better. Another example I'm, I'm aware of was someone was marketing their dog poop bags as com compost compostable, which they were, unless you put dog poop in it, which pretty much sure why you're buying the bag. So, you know, that's the sort of thing that's uh that's kind of a crappy thing to to say if if it's not true, pardon the pun. So those sorts of things they will come out. And they've they've gone after also products where um they went after a company called Truly Organic, where that was in their name, Truly Organic. And it was um it was personal care, face creams and things like that, but their products weren't organic. The only thing organic was their product name, which of course the FTC thought was a little deceptive. Interesting. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, since we're already kind of on the topic of supplements or consumables, ClickBank started selling uh, physical products at scale in 2015, 2016. We obviously deal with a lot of, a lot of consumable products. Um, you certainly have extensive experience in this. I'm curious what your thoughts are on what a uh, supplement seller should know um, before getting into that business. Well, you know, there's the, the basic structure function statement that the FTC wants on every label, the FDA, pardon me. And it, it, this where it gets confusing a little bit because the F, FDA will regulate what's on the label and what you should be saying and making sure that you say that uh, what, what the product does, you need to include this statement has not been evaluated by the FDA and this product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any disease. So that has to be on per the FDA. So after that, when it comes to marketing, then, then we get into the FTC, the other three letter agency rules. And a lot of the same rules of the road apply. You know, one example, going back to our net impression, what we were talking about before. So there could be someone who says, you know, this product is a traditional Chinese treatment for stress or sleep aid, but then on the pitch page, they've got a bunch of people in white jackets that look like they're doctors that, um, what's the net impression? Well, the net impression is not only is this a traditional uh, treatment and supplement, but that it's been scientifically tested and verified. So that is something that's real important because a lot of these supplements, they say that they are uh, a traditional or a native or a different approach, which can be fine, but you need to be very careful not, unless you have some science that has come on top of that, um, you shouldn't do anything to lead people to believe that, that this traditional use has actually been verified by science if it hasn't. Yeah, that makes sense. I do see, uh, you know, some sellers are trying to piece together ingredients um, based on claims that are that support those two ingredients, and then combine them to be able to make multiple claims together. I was kind of surprised. It, I may misunderstand, but I was kind of surprised to learn that that doesn't mean you can claim both just because you put two things in the same capsule. So specific, yeah. One, this is so the FTC 
uh, puts out certain guides and they give examples. And this is one of them. They gave specific two supplements. So the, the FTC's position is if you have a vitamin C and this has certain benefits and then you take some melatonin that, you know, say this is going to help prevent colds and sleep and help you get through cold season. And you have studies for the benefits of each one of those ingredients. According to the FTC, you can't claim those benefits together unless you have a study showing those two ingredients were actually studied together. I see. That makes sense. I have uh, found that uh, outside of, you know, we recommend everybody run it by an attorney, but also the supplement manufacturers, if you go back to the manufacturer, um, also have pretty good insight when it comes to this as well. And the good ones. Too. Yes. Yeah. And give the us a call. Like we have recommendations for good ones. <laughs> the, uh, I think it was, it was about eight years ago. They, um, the New York attorney general's office went out to a bunch of common stores like GNC and smaller stores and actually tested the, the pills, opened them up and tested them. And like a shocking amount of even common brands, like 80% of them didn't have the ingredients they were advertising. On the shelf at the retailer? Yep. What was actually in the pill didn't match what they said was in there. And uh, we, we had this happen to some of ClickBank's clients where someone was knocking off and selling their product. And what it appeared, somebody had set up a warehouse and was just copying the labels. And we hope it was just protein powder, but was sort of saying, okay, this bottle we're calling this supplement, this bottle is the same protein powder in the capsule we're calling this supplement. So it's frightening how little testing there is around there. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I, I think the overarching point though would be it's worthwhile to do your homework before setting this up because we do your homework and make sure the one whoever's manufacturing your product is someone who's reputable and ha can back up that that what what you're selling is what you're promising is in there. Mm -hmm. So, but it's you know uh, another example that gives you an idea of how strict the FTC can be on these things. So another specific example they have is for nasal strip for uh, to help with snoring. We've all seen them. You know, it's a common thing. People do, it opens up your nasal passages and will reduce snoring. Well, snoring is highly associated with sleep apnea, where people actually stop breathing. And that's a, those two th conditions are associated. And the nasal strip doesn't do anything about apnea. So according to the FTC, if you're selling nasal strips to help with snoring, you have to go out of your way and say, by the way, this doesn't treat apnea. Now that's an extreme example, but that's an example from the FTC that they just assume the consumer is going to say, well, if the snoring if it helps my snoring, then it must treat my apnea, even though you're not claiming it treat, treated apnea. So you have to go out of your way to exclude an associated condition. That you're not even trying to sell it on. In, the, in that example, yes. And so I'm sure there's other examples they might bring on somebody, but that's, that is how, uh, that, that is some of the examples, the FTC, I won't call them extreme, but some people might. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, very helpful guidance as always. Um, I, you know, we've obviously relied on you for nearly two decades. I always enjoy your insight into it. Uh, any closing thoughts before we wrap it up, Michael? Well, listen, I think everybody wants to make sales. We get that. And I have a lot of clients that I, I want to help them do that. But 
you want to make sure your sales stick. It's not only the right thing to do, but it, believe me, having slightly less sales with a more reliable legal pitch is going to be a lot less headaches than you know you can keep whatever those sales come in instead of having to spend them on legal fees. So, and, and then again, when people come in and they want refunds, yeah, I, I understand there are some people with BS reasons and you sh I'm not saying you should just roll over all the time, but do want err on the side of, gen of being generous with those because it'll help you in the long run. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on the refunds and the customer service. Uh, so many problems could be avoided with that. And of course, if you're listening to this and uh, want some guidance on how to do that, our account management teams are more than happy to more than happy to to uh, help go through all of all of that. So uh, I know you do work with a couple of our uh, our clients as well. So if any of the listeners want to work with you, uh, how would they get in touch with you? Sure. Again, my law firm is Holland and Hart. So it's Michael Kerrigan, C-A-R-R-I-G-A-N at Holland and Hart. So you can just Google me or my email is mkerrigan, M-C-A-R-R-I-G-A-N at Holland and Hart. Sure, we can put it in the show notes. Um, and obviously, if anybody who's working with ClickBank, I can't give legal advice about ClickBank or against ClickBank, but to uh, make sure you're following the rules of the road, or you've got good contracts, all of that we can and, and are happy to help you with because we want to make it succeed. We want to, um, and ClickBank is such a great partner. I mean, it's remarkable in all the years we've been working together and the hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars of sales. And you guys have never had any, you know, you've never been sued by an attorney general or the FTC and stuff like that. So that's why I think it's great for people to use your platform because if they're satisfying your standards, they're probably going to be okay. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I know that you have quite a bit of advice for entrepreneurs that want to grow their business. So uh, there's numerous other topics that we could cover and we look forward to having you back really soon. We'll have to do this quarterly or, or something. Yeah, so, that sounds great. So, well, Michael Kerrigan, thank you for your time. Thanks for joining us on Affiliated. Thanks, Dom. It's a pleasure.